0: I'm now going to hand over to Jim. Jim's title is God is Good." Uh, Jim is a resident Bible teacher here. He's an elder and we're very familiar with his work. And Jim, thank you for taking the time to prepare. We look forward to hearing from you tonight. Thank you, Johnny, for that kind introduction and good evening, everyone. It is a truly terrifying moment when a preacher walks to the lectern at 10 past seven. But please do not be alarmed. Over these summer months, our plan is to finish the evening service uh, a bit earlier than usual, um, so when I finish we'll sing two last songs, and, uh, but please please don't rush away, we should finish between quarter to and ten to eight. Uh, please stay around, and we'd love for you to um, chat with us. So tonight we begin a short series on the character of God. And in this study, I want to persuade you that the following three-word sentence is true, God is kind. In the weeks that follow, other Bible teachers will argue from Scripture that God is generous and fair and constant and good. But tonight, my aim is to persuade you that God is kind. Let's read two short sections from the New Testament. The first is found in Titus chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. I note that phrase in verse 4, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Now we'll turn to the book of Ephesians, just for a couple of verses. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 4. Well, three verses. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, you will see the full significance of those two readings at the very end of our talk. But for now, you can note that both fragments of Scripture describe the sending of Christ into the world as an act of kindness. Now, that's very unusual language to use about God, isn't it? We live in a world that regards God as a sort of cosmic tyrant. Richard Dawkins describes God as the most unpleasant control freak in all fiction (laughs) a vindictive, malevolent bully. Now, the Greeks uh, didn't have Dawkins' love of adjectives, they didn't use such colourful language. But in some ways, their view of God was even further from the descriptions we read in Titus and Ephesians. The Greeks believed that God was incapable of being affected by any outside influence incapable of feeling. Feelings were seen to be part of a lower, less spiritual sphere of existence. Aristotle said, the blessed and incorruptible being knows neither wrath nor favor. This sort of thing is only to be found in a weak being. The Greek idea of God is dispassionate and remote and unfeeling. Some of that Greek thinking seeped into the heads of medieval theologians, and they began to present the God of the Bible as nothing more than a list of moral properties. So even today, some systematic theologians introduce God as a sort of maximally perfect being. They describe him using phrases like infinite in being and perfection without parts or passions, immutable and incomprehensible. They will tell you that God cannot suffer. They will tell you that God only saves us because He has chosen to love us. He could equally well have chosen not to love us. God, we are told, does not even experience emotions. So outside of the Bible, we are presented with two pretty unlikable views of God. He's either a cruel tyrant, or He's a cold Arctic light. Now consider how different both those conceptions of God are from the language we hear from the Lord Jesus. Listen to Jesus talk about the Father he loves, and you'll hear about a God who notices when a little sparrow falls to the ground. A God who listens to every believer's prayer made in secret. A God who protects and loves and cares. Christ introduces us to a God who is kind and generous. He's the God who works quietly in the background, making sure the birds get fed and the rain falls in the right places, even though most of the time no one ever thanks him. When we listen to the Lord Jesus talk about His Father, we get this sense of a benevolent, warm, generous person, a kind God. Now, I guess my first task is to persuade you that this series matters, that God's character matters. I'm sure we can all think of a brilliant individual that we've met sometime in the past, you know, some talented, accomplished, successful person. Perhaps they have a glittering career or their sideboard at home groans under the weight of sporting trophies. And we have applauded them from the sidelines. Maybe secretly wished we had that level of talent. Or at least move faster than a slow walk. But there's a huge difference between talent and likability. And far too often we portray God as the ultimate talent. He's brilliant, powerful, successful. He never fails. But we're then left with the real question. Is God likable? As Christians, we claim that the goal of living is to have a personal relationship with God. We sing songs about loving Him and worshiping Him. But before you get to any of that stuff, I must confront you with a more basic question. Do you like God? Notice that I didn't ask you if you like Jesus Christ. He is rightly portrayed as warm and human and kind. I asked if you like God the Father, do you enjoy the fellowship that exists within the circle of God's love within the triune God? That question raises uh, matters because it relates to a believer's mental health. Some Christians live within a circle of accusing voices. Instead of enjoying the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they listen to a continual argument that goes on inside their own heads. For some unfortunate people, the mind is a constant storm of arguing voices, voices that accuse us, you're an imposter, or a hypocrite, they say, or you're a worthless failure, the disgusting, loathsome thing. Sometimes the accusing voices have been created by a carping parent or an abusive partner Sometimes the voices were created by well meaning but foolish youth leaders or church ministers who tried to instill guilt in people rather than allow God's grace to transform them. In more recent years, I don't need to tell the young adults in the room, the voice of social media has entered into the minds of many. It mocks and degrades us by holding out the airbrushed perfectionism of idealised beauty and success, and then it sneers at us for being ugly failures. But sometimes the accusing voice isn't the product of any external influence. It can emerge from a deep fracture within the personality. In a religious mind, the accusing voices often, caric- or often use caricatures of God to get our attention. So they tell us of a God who's disappointed and angry all the time. Or a God who just gets in a bad mood and lashes out at us. Or worse, maybe he shrugs his shoulders. And walks away in contempt. So you can see that the battle for mental health is the battle for truth. Truth about God and truth about you. It's the struggle to embrace the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. So this short series on the character of God is crucial to your mental health. Now for the rest of this talk I want to do three things. First we'll think of the quality called kindness. What do we mean when we describe someone as kind? Then we'll consider the the charge that God God is often unkind. Even his actions in the Bible can seem, in the eyes of some, to be unkind. And then finally, we'll see the crucial role God's kindness plays in salvation. So that's the plan. So first, what is kindness? The Old Testament gives us a few simple examples to help us get our heads around the concept. Genesis chapter 24 mentions kindness a great deal. And the background is that Abraham had sent his servant Eliezer to find a wife for his son Isaac. Uh, If only dating was that easy, say, some of the young men in the room. And the servant is looking for a young woman of good character. So he sits by a well and asks the shepherd girls for a drink. Now, of course, the spoiled narcissists were too busy with their own lives to take any notice of the old man. But then a girl called Rebecca arrives on the scene. Please let down your jar that I may have a drink, says the servant. And the young woman instantly replies, Drink, and I'll water your camels too. We learn two things about kindness from that little story. First, nothing is too much trouble for kind people. And second, kind people notice when others are in need. Out of the corner of her eye, she noticed that the big camels in the background of the scene were thirsty. And that is a great example of how kind people are on the lookout for opportunities to help. Now, if I translated that scene into our own world, the other shepherd girls went around with their noses buried in their smartphones, but Rebecca's head was up. She looked around, and when she saw a need, her natural kindness prompted her into action. Notice that word, action. She didn't post be kind on Instagram. She got hot and sweaty, dragging heavy bucket loads of water out of a well So that a bunch of grumbling camels could quench their thirst. Now you find another illustration of kindness in 2 Samuel. David has just been crowned king. And by the standards of the ancient Near East, David should have executed all the remaining members of his predecessor's household, Saul's household, just to consolidate his position. But David wanted to be a different sort of king. And so he asked... Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? A distant cousin was discovered, a disabled man called Mephibosheth. His future in that harsh culture should have been bleak, but he dined every night at the king's table. And scripture tells us that David's act was an act of kindness. And I guess the obvious lesson is that kind people don't just help people they like or who may be helpful to them in the future, True kindness very rarely provides any sort of kickback. My final example comes from the little book of Ruth. Most of you will know the story very well. The story uh, is that of an Israelite woman called Naomi. Naomi, her husband and two sons, um, went down from Israel to Moab to escape a famine. Disaster struck Naomi because her husband and both her sons died. She was left with two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Now, both girls were kind to Naomi, says Scripture. But when she decided to return to Israel, Orpah returned to her family and her Moabite gods. Ruth, however, refused to leave Naomi. May the Lord deal with me severely if anything other than death separates us. Now, the Bible tells us that that was an act of kindness. For Ruth, it was treating Naomi as God would have liked. She knew the God of Israel, his concern for widows, the poor, and the lonely. She had the sensitivity to see inside the older woman's heart, and she knew her duty as a follower of the Lord, the God of Israel. And so it was natural for her to act in this way, to tackle the hard job of living in abject poverty with cheerfulness and without complaint. Later on in the story, Naomi suggests to Ruth that she marries an older man called Boaz, who was called her kinsman-redeemer for Naomi's family line. In Israel, the importance of continuing the family line was enormous. So Ruth agreed to do what Naomi asked, and again, the Bible tells us that this was kindness. So what does that teach us? Well, here we see that kindness is a sort of natural, unself-conscious act of obedience to the values of Israel's God. She had learned about the kinsman redeemer, the importance of maintaining the family line, the role of Israel in God's plan to save the nations, and that was more important to her than a youthful partner or wealth. Now, it wasn't a self-conscious act of sacrifice, I don't think. I think she recognized a soulmate in Boaz. But it was rather the next step in the path of obedience. It was a good job she did. (laughs) Ruth's kindness helped Naomi recover from her spiritual cynicism. And it had even greater effects. She was King David's great-grandmother, from whose line came the Messiah. So when you put those three little vignettes together, you get a picture of kindness. Nothing is too much trouble for kind people. They notice need when others don't. They're never motivated by the hope of reward or kickback. And instead, they seem naturally to obey the values of the God of the Bible. Now, it's that last point which can cause us to shake our heads. Because the Israelites knew that their God was kind. The prophet Jeremiah once wrote these words. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Now, it's words like those which expose Richard Dawkins' insults as lies. Israel, in this picture, is presented to us as a crying toddler, an infant in distress, maybe it's cold or afraid or hungry. And God's deepest instinct is to lift the toddler to his cheek, to bring comfort and security. God is kind. Just think about the blessings of your own life. Nice food to eat, warm houses, people to love, the chance to make the world a better place, life with all its endless potential to learn and act and love. Where do those good things come from? Well, Acts 14 tells us, God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. God is kind. Hmm, last Sunday evening I was asked to speak in another church. The format was a straightforward question and answer session, so the audience fired in questions in real time by texting them to a mobile phone, and I had to attempt to answer them. It is, of course, a cruel sport. Now, the event was about the God of the Old Testament, and it had been publicised as a question Is God a moral monster? If someone just opened the Bible at random, particularly the Old Testament, they might read things that on the surface show God to be anything but kind. How does my assertion that God is kind stand up to accusations of genocide, support of slavery, even death penalties? Well, the first thing I'm going to say here is that God's character is coherent. It's not as if one day he's kind and loving, but then the next day he's all about justice and vengeance. God isn't moody. There's never any logical or moral contradiction in his dealings with us. The quality which explains how God can be both just and kind is the thing called patience. It takes incalculable power and self-control for God to give us opportunity after opportunity to change or even to ask for forgiveness. During that time, he has to allow us to be unkind to others. Remember, it's our sin that causes hurt and pain to come into the lives of innocent people. So eventually, God must intervene with justice. It's like that moment when a surgeon cuts out a cancerous tumor. Now, if you had no understanding of medicine and you just walked into an operating theater, you would not interpret the surgeon's actions as kindness. You'd probably think think the man was a psychotic sadist. But when we appreciate the seriousness of the disease, we see that the surgeon's actions are coherent. Imagine that you're driving home and a benign looking policeman, is there such a thing, waves you to a stop. Now, sir, he says, you were traveling five miles per hour over the speed limit. You need to be careful not to endanger the lives of other people. Have a good night. What a kind man, you say. Well, a week later, history repeats itself. The, politician, the, the pl- policeman's face is a little more stern this time. This is your second one. I clocked you at eight miles per hour over the speed limit. Please be more careful in future. What a kind policeman, you think. Well, a week later, you're caught doing 15 miles per hour over the limit. And with horror, you see the policeman start to write your details down in his notebook. Are you giving me points? You shouted out, out the window. I thought you were a kind man. Now, was the policeman being unkind in that moment? Of course not. It would have been unkind for him not to have booked you because he wouldn't have been protecting other road users from your moral folly. Now, that silly illustration explains a great deal of the difficult passages found in the Old Testament. In nearly every case, remember, God is dealing with nations, not not individuals. And he endures a nation's poor behavior for centuries before acting to cut out a spiritual cancer that if had been left alone would have destroyed the entire ancient Near East. My point is that God's kindness and His justice, they aren't like competing forces within an incoherent personality. Both are governed by divine patience. And so in the end, even God's justice is never unkind, because it is the final attempt to restore a nation to moral sanity. That's why Paul can talk about God's kindness and God's sternness in the same breath without any embarrassment. Well, you might be thinking, that explanation might make some sense in the context of the broad sweep of history and how God deals with nations. But what about how he deals with individuals? There have been times in my own life when I've been tempted to think that God is cruel or heartless certainly not kind. And the Bible's answer to this cry from the heart is once again all about context. You see, if God's objective was to keep us happy and content, then a lot of this stuff that He puts us through could rightly be described as unkind. So to understand Him, we need to pan the camera back and see His plans for us in their widest context, in the context of eternity. You are a magnificent being. Given just how magnificent you are, it would actually be unkind of God just to keep you happy. Happiness is a dog lying in the sun. But you are no mere animal. You are a magnificent moral and spiritual being who will serve God for all eternity. And so we need to locate our present circumstances in that grand context. And when we do that, We suddenly see that suffering is not the opposite of blessing. Those of you taking notes, write that down. Suffering is not the opposite of blessing. God can use our pain as a training ground to develop capacities and capabilities within you that will shine for all eternity. Long after this fallen old world has passed away. So maybe right now I'm talking to someone who's in the midst of a terrible trial. He might even have been tempted to call God heartless, unkind. But ask yourself this. Would you really just want God to give you a happy and trouble-free existence until you die? Is that the limit of your ambition? If Christianity is true, then God is working furiously in you at the moment. You may not even be aware of it. But trust me, there is a vast construction project underway. And one day you will see that even suffering can be used by a kind God to bring about your best long-term interests. I mean, think of the Apostle Paul for a moment. God put Paul through an enormous amount of suffering. Was God unkind to Paul? Well, contrast Saul of Tarsus as he was with the great Apostle who we find lying in his dungeon. In 2 Timothy, the young Saul was a cruel, vindictive, and violent man, but at the end, Paul could say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. God turned that man into a moral, intellectual, and spiritual giant, and so we can see his dealings with Paul as acts of kindness. So ask yourself this, would you rather just live out your days as a sort of soul of Tarsus with no moral or spiritual ambitions other than a bit of worldly success? God takes you seriously enough to deal with you, and even in your trial, that can give you ground for hope. So we have thought about the quality called kindness. We have briefly considered the charge that God's actions can sometimes seem to be unkind, But to conclude our study, let's now finish or consider the crucial role that God's kindness plays in salvation. So for our final reading, let's turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 4, just a single verse. Romans 2, verse 4. Paul says, Do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul here is talking to a group of pagans who had spurned the offer of salvation. Do you show contempt for these riches of of kindness, he says? Don't you realize that it's God's kindness that brings you to repentance? Maybe you've never thought about salvation that way before. Maybe you've only ever conceived of it as a sort of legal transaction that removes the penalty of sin. But think about the deeper problem, which is this. How does God get rebels like us ever to trust Him, ever to love Him? And the answer is that it is God's kindness that gets us to that point. For many years, my brother Peter and his wife lived in Los Angeles, and years ago they adopted a dog from an animal shelter, and they called this creature Una. And it became obvious that as a puppy, Una had been mistreated by a man. She was always affectionate towards Peter's wife. But when he entered the room, the dog immediately ran out. She refused to go anywhere near him, a situation which did very little for Peter's self-esteem. But month after month went by, and Peter was patient and kind. He fed her. He never shouted at her or scared her. And by very long, Una got to the point where she would approach him when he was sitting down so that she could lick his hand. The little creature was still wary of him, but his unfailing kindness healed a canine mind after abuse. How does God get us to trust Him? Just think again about all the lies we've been told about Him. Sometimes Christian preachers haven't done us any favors in understanding God's heart. So we can react to God like a snarling dog, paranoid, distrustful, ready to run away at a moment's notice. That's why God treats us with unfailing kindness. He's gentle and patient, not wanting anyone to perish. And gradually over years, the lies we've been told about him drain away. We see that he is rich in mercy and grace and kindness. And we get to the point where we begin to trust him. Now notice this. It is not God's power which leads us to repentance. God is almighty of course. But like any good father, he doesn't use his power to bring about change in his children. That sort of control freakery only exasperates children. If you go back to my shaggy dog story for a moment, imagine what the result would have been if my brother Peter had tried to use power to change his dog's mind. Would shouting commands at the dog to love him and trust him have worked? Of course not. Like any good father, God only uses his power to protect his children. He never uses his power to crush us. And it is unfailing kindness which allows paranoia and distrust to drain away. Many of our behavioral patterns stem from really deep insecurities that lurk in the roots of our personalities. If those roots could be exposed and examined, we would find that some of us feel unloved. Some of us have an inability to trust. Some are riven with a profound sense of insecurity. And those sorts of problems run very deep. The main structural support people need to overcome them is to know and experience the true character of God. And for tonight, tonight, it is to rest in the truth that God is kind. We have clear, objective evidence for that claim. Which brings us back, as we close, to the two passages of Scripture we read at the start. You may have noticed... Titus 3 calls us to look back. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. But Ephesians 2 calls us to look forward. When Paul finishes off his description of our salvation with these words, he says, In order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That is the great context which gives us objective evidence that God is kind. Look back at the life and death of Jesus, the cross of Christ, and know that God is kind. And look forward to the return of Christ and all the hope that we have for the world to come and once again know that God is kind. Let's close in a word of prayer. And then we'll sing our final two hymns. Our Father in heaven, <clears throat> we thank you that when the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, he told us the truth about your character. And we pray that once again, your word would strip away the lies that culture uh, has told us about you. We thank you that when we see into your very heart, we see a warm, benevolence and a kindness and we have objective evidence for that because we see it in the coming of Christ and we will see it even more when he returns once again and so we pray for those in this room who have reason to question your kindness who at this moment may be tempted to think Lord that you are heartless or even cruel And we pray that your word would strengthen them, that they would look to the cross of Christ and once again find there the evidence that you can be trusted. Help them to overcome their paranoia, their distrust, their fear that they're unlovable, and to come back to you and to experience your kindness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.